Well, to get started this morning, I want to know, uh, are there any math teachers here in the room? Just raise your hand proudly. No? Okay, good, because this next illustration is going to offend you if you are. So I just wanted to get that ready. You know, when you're taking math in, in uh, middle school, high school, college, a math teacher, in some form or fashion, will, will tell you, but don't worry, you're going to need this in real life at some point. Can we all just be adults and agree that's not really true? Like, that's just kind of a straight-up lie to some degree. Like, you know, uh, like, you know, taking calculus in high school, it's like, I have never once needed the derivative of a matrix in my real life. Like, like just basic math, the hardest math I do on a regular basis in my stream of life, my career, is I do some woodworking on the side, and so it's like, how do I cut three and three-quarters in half? Like, figuring out, and that's about, about it. And, and I use that to say that this morning's message is kind of like a, a Christian calculus type of situation. It's, it's a text, it's a chapter where there's a lot going on. And it's a text and it's a chapter where there's a lot of things where people be like, wait, that's in there? What do I do with that? It seems a little confusing. It lacks some clarity. And when it comes to math, it's like, hey, we know it's there. We know it's valuable and important, but there might be a level of how much it may or may not apply directly to me. And today's text is one of those that I think uh, over the course of human history, church history, is a chapter that has been misunderstood. It's definitely got sections that have been misused in in either uh, overly positive ways or sometimes some negative connotations. And it's a chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, that deals with the gift of speaking in tongues, a prayer language, as well as it has a couple verses about something, uh, about women speaking in services that that might be your experience, your, your church history. Uh, uh, for you personally, might be an experience in which part of this chapter was used to silence you. It might be something that you grew up and that you were kind of revolving around to try to figure out. If you're new to church, we have people, uh, many who who feel like our church is a safe place to explore doubts, Christianity, where this is going to be one of those chapters where you're like, wait, hold up, bro, what? What's in scripture? What's going on here? And so my, my hope today is to acknowledge up front uh, of kind of what it is, that it's going to be maybe a little bit confusing and how we can still glean from it today. So if you have a Bible, hope you do, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, we are in week 22 of our teaching series through 1 Corinthians, just a couple more weeks, uh, and we'll be wrapping up this study. Uh, I'm going to do something today, this morning, that isn't the norm. I'm going to read the entire chapter in its entirety, and here's why. It's because when we have a text that is sometimes misunderstood, when we have a text that is sometimes misused, when we have a text that gets maybe overly applied in ways it's not meant to be, it's usually because we lose sense of its content and its context collectively. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you can follow along with me in your own Bible. If you need a Bible, we'd love to give one to you after service. You can download our app, follow along. If you have listening ears this morning, uh, listen closely uh, for this, this Christian calculus, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to read all 40 verses, so buckle up, let's do this thing. He says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spirit, especially the gift of prophecy. For if anyone speaks in a tongue, but does not speak to people, but speaks to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their strengthening, encouraging, and their comfort. 
Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. Your translation might say build up. You're going to see this is a reoccurring word or phrase in chapter 14. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and I speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sound, such as a pipe or a harp, how will anyone know where the tune is being played unless there's a distinction of the notes? And again, if a trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? And so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If I then do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in the tongue should pray that they might interpret what they say. For if I pray in the tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. And for the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to the people. And even when they will not listen to me, thus says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they will be convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. And so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Verse 26, we're almost there. Then what shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at most should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet, and the church should speak, uh, and the speaker should speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but he's a God of peace, as in all the congregations with the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. 
Or did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge what uh, I am writing to you and the Lord's command is. But if anyone ignores this, they will be themselves ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But in everything, it should be done fitting in an orderly way. You get why I say this is kind of like Christian calculus, right? A lot kind of going on, a lot of stuff that seems, how do we resolute this? If you're a fan of courtroom shows or movies, there's inevitably going to be that scene in which things get a little chaotic. Maybe the defendant or the prosecutor speaks out of turn. They object when they can't. Maybe someone in the jury, maybe somebody who's on the stand kind of begins to get overly emotive. Maybe somebody in the crowd who's supposed to be silent begins to yell out things and it's not allowed. And at some point, the judge will inevitably do, that happens in almost every scene, is they will begin to bang their gavel, pop, 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 pop. And that will begin to signify like, hey, we got to get things back on track. And the judge will shout those words that we've all probably been familiar with, that phrase, order, order in the court. Because what the judge is trying to do is saying, hey, we're getting off track. We are here to do something very specifically. And in a court of law, what you're trying to do is for the truth to be revealed so that justice may be had and served. And the Apostle Paul in chapter 14 is kind of acting like a judge for the specific context of the Corinthian church. He's kind of banging his pen as a gavel to say, order, 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 we need to remind you, we need to get back on track for what we are here to do. You see, in chapter 14, the Apostle Paul uses this word build up eight times. Strengthen, edify, build up. He says, let me remind us all, Christians, let me remind those of you who gathered in a church context, you are here to do this one thing. You are here to build up one another, to build up the name of Christ, to glorify Jesus as Lord and Savior. But you've gotten a little off track. So let me call order into play. Now, if you were to hop in the time machine with me, and we were to go back in time, I don't have a time machine. If somebody has a DeLorean, I'd love to try something, just a question. And we were to go back to this context, the ancient Corinthian church, there were three things that were leading to disorder in their context. Number one is the pagan worship that they had probably prior to becoming Christians or followers of Jesus. The god Apollos was the most widely recognized god in in all of Corinth, maybe uh, next to uh, the goddess uh, of Diana. But then there's this, uh, they had these oracles of Delphi. So they had these specific spots. If you've ever seen the movie 300, there's that scene in which they go up to the mountain to seek uh, prophecy of the oracle. It's kind of built on the same idea. And so what happened is they had this, this individual, a female lady who was chosen basically from birth to be a spokesperson from God. And she lived in the temple and there would be these votive offerings where they would come and sacrifice because some people needed wisdom or insight. And whether it was, should I start this business? Should I go to war? Help me discern the situation relationally. It didn't really matter. You offered a sacrifice. The oracle would then hallucinate and babble. Wouldn't it be English? Wouldn't it be ancient Greek, corn, whatever it was? It wouldn't be an intelligible language. But there was always a priest there who would write down what was said and then they would offer a translation. 
And so when you think about this, is that was the culture that they lived in. It was a revered, it was an idolized thing. And so you had those people who used to go to the Oracle of Delphi, and then they became followers of Jesus. They come to the church, and they begin to experience people speaking in tongues, a prayer language with God that maybe sounded a little similar. And they think, oh, okay, well, I guess this is kosher now too. This is cool. Or maybe that is something I need, need to do or I must do in order to be in one with the Spirit. So Paul says, hold up. That is cultural stuff being brought in. While the Spirit does move and work in mysterious ways, it's not the same. That's the first thing. The second thing that was causing issues was the cultural context of how they sat in their synagogues. These churches would, uh, would have been house churches that would come together periodically for larger gatherings. And the Jewish custom is they had all these different seating arrangements in the synagogue. So up front near what would, would have been the pulpit area, the first kind of rows would have been those for the spiritually elite, the, the, the rabbis, the high priests. So, so if we had like the first four rows kind of blocked off, this is where the hyper-spiritual, the best of the best would sit. So for you guys up here, congratulations. You sat in the splash zone. You are our hyper-spiritual people for today. Everybody else be jealous of them because they were bold and you were not. Just kidding. Okay, so that was the first thing. And then everybody else kind of sat. Men would sit over there. Women would sit on the outskirts. Gentiles had their own spot until they were welcomed in. And so while they no longer maybe separated people based on their maybe the theological level or their spirituality, they still drew a line down their sanctuary. Women sat over on one side, men sat on the other, and during service, women would shout things over to get answered to their husbands for clarification. That was the second contextual piece that was happening. The third thing is they just lacked liturgy. And what I mean by liturgy is the things that they should regularly do as a gathered, assembled, body of a, of a church, an ecclesia. And so because leadership was being developed, because elders, they were trying to figure it out, it was kind of a free-for-all. So imagine every Sunday morning we got here and we didn't really know what we were doing. And I just went up to some of you being like, yo, you want to preach today? Hey, hey, I don't got really anything to say. Uh, has God given you a word? Do you want to say something? And some of you, if I did that to you, you'd be like, yeah, I'm going to go find a different church. I don't want to be here. I want to do that type of thing. Others of you are like, I don't know, I'll give it a shot. We'll see what happens, right? And that was kind of the way it was. It was just a free-for-all, and they would kind of just say, okay, whoever wants to say something can. But it's not hard to understand that people became selfish. Well, I want to be the one who looks really spiritual today. I want to be the one who gives the word of prophecy. And it got so bad that as people would get up to say something, other people would jump up in front of them to speak over them. And Paul's saying, yeah, we got to cut that out. That's not a thing. we got to put order back into this whole thing. Now, if we're going to take all of this and summarize the context of what was happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I would say it this way. is that the issue at hand was their individualism as disciples. Well, it's my gifts, I want to express them my way. It's my church, I want it to meet my needs. I want to be the one who's known, seen, recognized. I don't care. If I have a question, I should be able to ask it. It doesn't matter if it's a distraction or not, because that's what I have deemed as the thing to do. There was this hyper-individualism that began to creep into their faith. And Paul says, let me remind you, church, that we exist to build one another as a community of faith. Now we can take a step back and say our direct context it really isn't that. We don't, we don't separate men and women in our congregation to sit. Some of you are like, that would be kind of nice though. I drove here with her, we got an argument, it might be nice to sit across occasionally. I don't know, you can if you want. 
We don't really have a, a huge expression of, of speaking in, in tongues prayerly publicly here at our church. You might have belonged to a church in the past that has. And so it'd be really easy for us to say, that's calculus. I don't really need to pay attention. Let's move on to the next thing. In fact, if you were to kind of go online and you were to look up churches who uh, done series through 1 Corinthians, you'd find that a lot of churches are pastors, they skip over this chapter because they don't really know what to do with it. It's confusing. Does it apply? Do we need it? Whatever. And what I want to say today is that issue at hand of individualism, while it's not expressed in the same way for us today, it's still very prevalent in faith today. Maybe you've met somebody, maybe you've got somebody in your family, maybe you've heard the phrase, it's like, hey, Jesus and I, we're tight, we're cool, but I don't need to go to a church. I can be spiritual on my own at home, but I don't need to really belong to a church or a community of faith. Jesus and I are good. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe he is Savior, but you can keep all that churchy stuff yourself. I've got it from here. An interesting thing about that is if you read Scripture, you read the heart of Jesus, you read the, the, the epistles, you will never find the description of an individualistic faith. The New Testament doesn't end at the cross or the resurrection of Jesus after he triumphs over sin and death and say, okay, all done, you're on your own. There's an expectation that as soon as you belong to Jesus, you then belong to something else. And that something else is the body of Christ. And the Spirit of God lives in you and he edifies you. And the church surrounds you seeking to edify you, to build you up, and we collectively come together to be stronger, to magnify the name of Jesus. Like the Bible is unfamiliar with somebody who is good with Jesus but rejects his church. It's never an option. It's never an understanding you can arrive at. It's never even given as, as like a, a coincidental thing. Well, this is what happened in my life. This is a situation. So, okay, well, if that happened to you, then yeah, you can be a Christian and not participate in the church. It's just never a thing. And that's hard because some of us have church experiences where it's burned us. No church is perfect. No pastor is perfect. No elders are perfect. We're never going to get everything right. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear, if you belong to the family of God, you belong in this building up of one another. So what are we going to do about it? Because you can't help build up the whole if you live out your faith in an individualistic way. So three keys for us this morning. It was a super long open, but I'm like two minutes ahead of first service, so cool. Um, uh, Three keys to help us build up the church. While it might not be our context, what do we do with kind of this calculus Christianity that we might not understand fully? Three thoughts for us this morning as we can apply it to our lives, these implications. Number one is that we see that all spiritual gifts are valuable, but they strengthen in differing ways. I'm going to venture to guess that you came here in some sort of motorized vehicle. Whether you drove yourself, somebody else drove you, you rode our, our, our transportation uh, from Lincoln Square to bring you here, you probably rode in some sort uh, of a vehicle. And if you were to pop the hood of that vehicle, or once, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of parts that you might be able to recognize. There might be parts that you have no idea what they are. If somebody says point to a carburetor, you're just like, I don't know, is this it? It's like, yeah, that's the gas can. Like, I don't know, like type of situation. And it's interesting because there are different parts, and, and the different parts of a car, they cost vitally different amounts of money. Like an oil filter costs like 5 to $6. Maybe it's like $72 because of inflation now, but you get the point. 
It's a pretty inexpensive part. But we know that a timing belt, a transmission, a whole new engine has a completely different amount of cost to it. If you go to a mechanic and they're like, yeah, you just need an oil change, like, okay, cool. If you go to a mechanic and they say you need a new transmission, you're going to go home, cry, eat a bunch of ice cream, sulk for a couple days to figure out how to pay for it. And it's the same thing with spiritual gifts. They're all valuable and essential. Your car cannot run effectively or efficiently without an oil filter, even though it's one of the cheaper parts you need for your vehicle. And the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying every spiritual gift is valuable, but they strengthen the body in differing ways. And he begins to kind of pull on these two different ones, the gift of praying, speaking in tongues, and the gift of prophecy. But he makes it abundantly clear that you belong to the family of God because of the Spirit of God that lives in you, not because you have a specific gift of the Spirit. Let me say that again because that's important. That Paul is making the point, he said that, that the sign of salvation is the gift of the Spirit living in you, not a particular gift of the Spirit. And there's some churches, there's some theology out there that says, well, see, Paul's saying you got to speak in tongues in order to belong to the family of God. Paul's like saying, no, 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 that ain't it. Speaking in tongues is real. Speaking in tongues is valuable, but by no way, shape, or form is it a requirement for you to belong. And the same way goes for prophecy. Now, when we hear the word prophecy, our mind goes to, to future telling. Okay, I got my little crystal ball here. Okay, what's the weather going to be tomorrow? What's the weather going to be in the next five minutes? I don't really know. Are the Bears going to win? Oh, they won. Cool. But I'm predicting three more losses in a row type of situation. We don't really know. Too soon? Okay. We think of prophecy as this foretelling of events going to happen. Scripture oftentimes says, no, prophecy is more of just explaining the things of God, the word of God, the voice of God, so that everybody may understand and be built up by it. That's why Paul says in in, in chapter 14, verses 4, 19, he said, that's why speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, it builds up yourself, but not everybody else because they don't glean anything from it. So Paul says, I would rather speak five known words, intelligible words, than 10,000 words in a tongue so that people may be built up. And somebody came up to me after first service and said, hey, Eric, could you try preaching in five words next time? That would be great. Just give it a shot. See what happens. And so the point that Paul is making, he said, every gift is valuable, important, but they strengthen in different ways. Praying in tongues is very real. Some of you in this room have that gift but it's not essential to be a follower of Jesus, and there's also an order to it. Paul's reminding us, saying the whole point of this church, faith, Christianity thing is to build one another up. That's why he's kind of making the idea logically. If you pray in tongues and it builds you up, great, continue to do that. But don't force it on anybody else. Don't mandate it for somebody to belong. Do that which builds up one another. Every gift is valuable. Because they're God's gift chosen by him to see who needs them and to use them. But they strengthen in different ways. That's the first point. Second point, second key for us building up the church is this. Is that spiritual maturity balances order and openness to the spirit. And this is the point in the message that some of you maybe get a little uncomfortable. Some of you, your ears might be perking up a little bit more because you're curious. Some of you are kind of on the edge of your seat because of your past experience. What does Eric think? 
What does first Christian land on these things? And this is where we land. We want to be open to the order and what Scripture says. This is how we do things. But that there's an openness that the Spirit is very much alive and active. Some of you uh, wish that uh, we would take what would be called a, a cessationalist view of spiritual gifts. That means the miraculous gifts are dead and gone because that was the time of the apostolic age. They're no more. And my response to that is like, they're not my gifts. So if God wants to give somebody some more charismatic gift, healing, miracles, gift of, uh, of discernment, knowledge, prophecy, speaking, praying in tongues, that's God's job to decide. That's not mine. I'm not God. I can't say. Scripture doesn't say they're dead and gone, so I don't know what you want me to do. Others of people will say, well, what about a full-on expression? Like, let's just let it all out. Let's just see what wild and crazy stuff happens. To which we say, yeah, that ain't it either. Because Scripture says there's order that is needed. Two or three interpreters. There's all of these things that we need to bring together. That my desire in my personal spiritual life, and hopefully it is for you too, is to love more of Jesus. To glean more of the Spirit. Just candidly, I have never prayed in tongues before. I haven't. Uh, you, maybe you have. Maybe that is a gift that you have. I've never prayed. I've actually had people pray uh, for me to receive the gift of tongues, and it just didn't happen. Uh, it was one summer during college. I was helping out with an FCA camp, and the speaker for the week, him and his associate, were from uh, a denomination that kind of believed in a, in a more fuller expression of those gifts. And I got talking to them, and they knew I was kind of studying to be a pastor. And uh, near the end of the week, they came up to me, and they said, Eric, uh, so yeah, I mean, we're just we're, we're excited for you. Heard part of your story. Uh, really looking forward to, yeah, it seems like you have this, this gift of, of preaching, prophecy, whatever, um, but do you, do you speak and pray in tongues? I said, I don't. And they said, well, would you like to? And I said, well, I would, but that's kind of God's discernment, not mine. And they said, well, well, let's pray. We want to pray over you so that you may receive this gift. And I was like, okay, bring it on. Let, like, let's do this. I don't know how it works. Um, deal. And so I'm sitting there, and they're praying over me. One guy, uh, he's got a hand on me, and one guy is praying. The other guy starts praying in tongues. I was like, I don't know what he's saying, but it, this is what it is. And then, da, 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 amen, and they step back, and they're like, how do you feel? And I said, absolutely the same. And the guy goes, well, give it a whirl. And I was like, okay, here we go. Holy Spirit, my tongue is yours. And nothing happens. I was like, I got nothing. And the guy's like, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know, I'm a sinner. I don't know, do you need to lay both hands on me? Zap me again, give me more. I don't know what's going on here. And then it was a, the, the dawning on me when it was just this full out. That is a gift that God has given to you. You need to use it wisely. You need to use it in the way that God has ordained it, but it's not my gift, and that's okay. God has given me the gift to preach. He's given me the gift to understand Scripture. That doesn't mean you have to preach. He doesn't mean you have to get into a pulpit on a weekly basis to follow Jesus well. They're God's gifts to determine, and so there's a balance of an openness to the Spirit of God and things that we might not understand, that might be a little bit mysterious for us, but that we need to remind ourselves there is also an order to all of those things. That's why Paul says, if or when it happens, make sure there's an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, be very skeptical of what it is. If there's no interpreter, do not listen to it because you don't know if they're possessed by the Spirit or possessed by Satan. Because they might be doing it for selfish reasons. If there's no interpreter, take a step back. Don't listen because every gift is given to build 
up the church. Paul says, but if you have that gift and no interpreter is present, keep it to yourself, pray to God in your tongue. That's cool, that's kosher. But it's not for everyone to have. But being spiritually mature means we learn to balance this. Some of us, our church background has taught us to be maybe perhaps overly open to the spontaneity of the faith. There's a weird move in our evangelical circles right now that kind of like overemphasizes the spontaneous. The spontaneous sermon, the spontaneous song, the spontaneous prayer is somehow more spiritual than the one that has been carefully thought out, written out, prayed over, over time. And scripture makes it abundantly clear whether it's spontaneous and a gift of the Spirit or it's been something that's been prayed and mulled over for weeks, days, whatever it is on end, they are both equally edifying to the body of Christ. We get off track when we begin to think the spontaneous stuff is somehow more spiritual. And so Paul's yelling, order, order, order. Let's make sure it's done in order with an interpreter because one person's spontaneous prayer isn't necessarily better or more spiritual than the one who's been sitting on it for a week. That's the second point. Third point, last point for us this morning, uh, third key I should say, is that hearing from God combines empowering environments and silencing distractions. Let me say that again. When it comes to the family of God being in the church, hearing from God combines empowering environments and silencing distractions. (laughs) One more, Jordan. No, I'm just kidding. So this is the part in the text where I think some bad misuse comes from, verse 34, 35. Women, remain silent in the church. Know your place. Sit down. Close your mouth. That's what you're there to do. Our church would be way worse off if that was the take we took. Because remember, there was a line down the middle. Women on one side, men on the other. And what was happening is these people were new to faith. They're new to Christianity. They're trying to learn stuff. And then all of a sudden, they, they, they have a question about what was being said. Because women were characteristically uneducated. And they didn't get the opportunity, so they had questions. And so during the middle of a sermon or during the middle of a worship service, they had something that they wanted to know. And instead of waiting until they got into the minivan on the way to Cracker Barrel, they had questions. And so their wife was like, hey, Steve, 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 over here, it's your wife. Steve, can you hear me? Steve. Everyone's like, shh, Sally, be quiet. No, 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 Steve, I got a question. I know I sound like a dude right now, but I just got to know something. I need to help me understand. At that point, it's simple. Paul's just saying, let's not do that. (laughs) That's it. That's all Paul's saying. Because if you turn back to chapter 11, he makes the emphasis that women are going to be praying and prophesying a gift of the Spirit. Chapter 13, or chapters 12, 13, and 14, when it talks about the gifts of the Spirit, there's no gender specifics given. When the Apostle Paul writes the letter of Romans, he hands it to a female lady by the name of Phoebe and says, take this to the hundreds if not thousands of Christians in the city of Rome and explain to them what it means. It's a contextual issue that Paul is saying, let's just cut out the distractions so we can better hear from God. Like just a brief aside, if it was this big thing, why would Paul only give two verses to this? He has no problem spending chapters, entire books, tackling issues. Why would he tack on just two verses of something that would be a monumental issue? Instead, he just kind of says, no, no, no. 
hey, if you got questions, let's just not be a distraction. Silence the cell phones. You do the same thing when you go see a movie. Let's do the same thing in the house of God. Women are going to pray publicly. They're going to speak publicly. They're going to hear from God. They're going to lead things, other women's ministries. And they're going to do so many things for the edification, the building up the church. Let's just not be a nuisance when we're doing, okay? And that's kind of where I want to land the plane here this morning. It's not so much about talking about, well, women, what is your role or your spot? But rather, how do we apply this text to us? Have we gotten to the point where we eliminate distractions in our own lives to better be a follower of Christ who hears from God regularly and consistently? If you want to know, what do I do with chapter 14? If you have a Bible with you, highlight, circle, underline verse 1 because it has two points in there. Pursue love, desire the gifts. Pursue love, earnestly seek the spiritual things. Chapter 14 isn't about who can say what or not. Chapter 14 isn't about are certain gifts alive or dead. Chapter 14 is about Paul reminding Christians that the spirit of the living God is in you and wants to live through you in the Christian life isn't about you living through you out of your own desires, your own individualism, your own selfishness that the Spirit of God wants to move in you and through you. And the life of the disciple is one who is open to the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the order of things in the church for the edification of all people. So this is what I want to close with because I know for some of us, uh, the spiritual things of the Holy Spirit, maybe they weird us out. Maybe they're kind of pushed off to a side. Maybe your church history is one the church took it way too far. Maybe you had experience like me. Someone said, I want you to pray in tongues. I'm going to pray over you. Nothing happened. And you thought you were less than. Or you were told you're less than. Maybe your church experience was you grew up and you're a, you're a female and somebody told you to shut your mouth. And they pointed to that verse. But that's not what this means. This text is about how do we better live in union with God so that we may build each other up, knowing that the Spirit is very much alive and active. So here it is. If you want to learn how to maybe more wisely discern the Spirit for you, I want you to think of these three things. Number one, do you hunger for the Spirit and the Word of God? Number two, are you in the habit of eliminating distractions? And number three, do you value the community of faith? Just look at these three things. Look on the screen, one of the screens here, and just think about those three things for a moment. If I were to ask you, which of these three things do you seem to be lacking the most? Or which of these three things is the one that's maybe you've kind of shied away from? Which of these three things, if you were to be honest, is the one that you know deep down would take you further in your faith than ever before? I want you to think about it. And then we're all going to raise our hands. No, just kidding. We're not going to do that. My prayer for you, my prayer for myself, my prayer for my wife, my kids, our church, our elders, everybody, is that we are a church that, that balances order and openness. We believe the Bible. We preach from it every single week. We want to be open to the Spirit in its ways that are biblically centered. The Spirit is not dead by any way, shape, or form. It's alive and active. 
But we need to wisely discern it in our lives so that we don't idolize the pagan things, so that we don't overemphasize the spontaneous, so that the gift that God has given you or the multiple gifts are put into practice to build us up as a body of faith. You might look at these three things and you might say, I'm a pretty disciplined person. I can eliminate distractions pretty well. I like coming to church. I've got a group. But the thing for you is like hungering for, for the spirit and the word of God is something that you don't really feel like you have. I just feel like it's a dry season. Let me tell you something that's not weird to do. And I do it on a regular basis is to pray for God to make me desire him. I think sometimes we think that's, that's a weird thing. Well, if you have to pray that, do you actually love Jesus? It's like, man, on a daily basis, like, like, I, like the, my prayer before I go to bed, my prayer uh, first thing when I wake up is the same prayer. God, help me to desire more of you. First prayer when I wake up, God, help me to more desire more of you today. And so for some of you, just hungering for his word, getting into the word of God, uh, desiring to be attuned to the spirit is just, you need to take that step. And it, it could start simply by just saying, God, I want to f- see your spirit move in my life more. I want to see you in your word in ways like, like I never have. Maybe for, for you, a lot of us, if I'm going to venture to guess, if I said, which of these three things, you probably said the eliminating distractions. Our world is insanely good at giving us distractions. You got kids? They're a good distraction. You got a job? It's a good distraction. You got relationships in your life with friends, coworkers, parents? can be a distraction. Now, how many of you have done this before? You're like, okay, I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm going to read the Bible, spend time with Jesus. You set your alarm, da, da, da. Your alarm goes off. You pick up your phone, and you're like, okay, cool. I'm going to get up. Hold on a second. I just want to check my email. You want to see what text messages I got? Well, I wonder what happened last night on Facebook and Twitter and, and, and Snapchat and Instagram and Be Real and TikTok and then back to Instagram because that's my favorite because they got lots of cute puppies or something. I don't know. Like, and you, just keep, you ever done that before? And then all of a sudden it's been like 45 minutes. We have a hard time eliminating distractions. So here's a life hack for you. If that's something that you want to eliminate distractions, you can better hunger and thirst for the spirit and word of God. Do yourself a favor. Go to Walmart. Go to Meyer. Go to Target. Spend $12 on an analog alarm clock. They're going to give you instructions of how to set it up. I know it's weird. It's got actual buttons and stuff. Like, and use that to get up in the morning. Put your phone in a different room. Turn it off. So at least sets a barrier for something to do before you actually reach for a distraction. Maybe the third distraction is to value the community of faith. You're someone who is bought into that lie, I can be a Christian, but I don't need the church. I can follow Jesus, but I don't need to be in a group. I don't need a cohort. I don't need accountability in my spiritual life. The Bible knows no such thing as a person who goes at faith alone. I don't know what it is for you, but all of these things collectively come together to help us do one thing, and that is to build up the name of Jesus helps us to glorify, to magnify his gospel, his grace. Allows us to lean into one another to extend that forgiveness, that restoration. Maybe for you the distraction's not social media or another person. Maybe it's your past. Maybe Satan has tried to get you to buy into the lie. Remember that thing you did? Remember that stuff you said you would stop doing? Remember, remember that time in which you did that thing? And, yeah, I'm just going to continually remind, and that's the distraction you need to eliminate. 
that Jesus has saved you, he's redeemed you, he's restored you, he's forgiven you. Maybe your distraction is you're constantly comparing yourself to other moms. Maybe your distraction is you're consistently comparing yourself to what other people make. Maybe your, your distraction is like, I don't know, I just don't really feel like I have this figured out. And Jesus is saying, that's okay. Because I have figured it out with you, for you. I love you, I care about you, lean in. Maybe for you it's just purely saying, God, I just need to take that next step. I need to be in your word. I need to learn to pray. I want to know what my gifts are. I want to move in the spirit because that is the best way to live. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me, and there's always something. My hope, my prayer, my desire is that we are always a church filled with disciples that seek to build up the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus alone. Let's pray as we continue to worship this morning. Jesus, we, we, we come before you because you alone are worthy to be praised. You alone are worthy to be, to be magnified. We thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your gospel. Thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet. Thank you for your spirit that lives in us. I pray this morning, Father, as we enter to a time of communion, that we are reminded of what it is that you have done and the great things that you are doing in us and through us. Your body was broken, your blood was shed. The cracker and the juice are the representations that we don't just have salvation, but we have new life. We've been converted, but we are not dead. And you've given us a role, you've given us a helper, a guide, an advocate in your spirit. We want to lean in. We want to lean in wisely. We want to lean in in ways like never before to perhaps discover our gifts, to reject the individualized form of faith, to eliminate distractions so that we can hear from you. Speak to us, Lord, because your servants are listening, and we want to build up your name and your kingdom, never our own. Should pray? Amen.